You know, if you're ever on board on a Wednesday night and you like the choir's music, you're welcome to come and hang out here. It was like I had a free concert on Wednesday night just listening to the choir practice. And I don't know if you appreciate, you know, all the time and effort that it takes to uh, put those uh, times together and blend all those voices and so forth. And uh, so I just appreciate that. And uh, thank you so much, wherever you are. <laughs> okay. Uh, from the very beginning of time, uh, God planned Christmas. And I want to um, suggest to you this morning that uh, I, I feel like what I have to say this morning is so significant and important and great, but I feel incapable of trying to get it across. And so I'm going to ask you to work extra hard at listening. And, and uh, I, you know, ever since Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God said, Genesis, now at the very, very beginning of, of time, God said the seed of a woman will come and crush the head of Satan. You and I have an enemy named Satan. He's out to destroy everything God wants to give us. And God promised right from the get-go, right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of a woman will someday come. It's an unusual phrase because seed doesn't belong to a woman, correct? It's an unusual phrase. The seed of a woman will come and crush the head of our greatest enemy, Satan. And I want to suggest to you that from that point forward, you can pretty much understand history as almost a chess game between Satan and God. God has a plan. He's going to bring somebody here who's going to crush Satan's head and all that that represents. And Satan knows it and does all he can to prevent that plan from ever coming to pass. Right in the very beginning, right, you have the sons of man, they're called, the sons, uh, the, the uh, fallen angels of Satan cohabit with the women of man and create these, and that's why there's a flood, right? There's this huge flood that wipes out the whole, except for Noah, because Satan has a plan. Like, if I could destroy humanity, then the seed of the woman couldn't come. And you go a little further, and there's the Tower of Babel, there's Nimrod, and he you know, it creates this false religion and this tower that's going to, uh, I think it's not, you know, to climb to the heavens, but related to astronomy. And all false religion can be traced back to early Genesis and uh, Nimrod and the whole false thing, if you know the story of him and the kind of the false Messiah thing of how his wife gets pregnant by a sunbeam and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it all traces back and everything goes forward out of there and God has to come down and destroy and you have Babel and the uh, nations are spread around by different languages and so forth. Just back and forth, back and forth between God and Satan, God working a plan. But uh, I've been trying to stress uh, in the last few weeks that the Bible says, surely the sovereign God, you know, does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants. So God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has revealed it so that we can know it. And he's revealed it ahead of time so that there can be no question that it's God. Surely the sovereign God reveals his plans to his people before he does them. And uh, we're tied into the book of Isaiah, and I, I just wanted to, a couple of times Isaiah makes this point. In Isaiah chapter um, 46, verses 9 and 10, uh, listen, to, uh, listen to these words. Remember the former things, those of long ago. Like, you know, history has a purpose here. Remember the former things of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. 
I make known the end from the beginning. I reveal my plan for humanity before it happens. He says, and then he says this, from ancient times I make known what's still to come. From ancient times. You can't get more ancient than Genesis. From ancient times I make known what's going to come. And so uh, Isaiah picks up on this theme. Isaiah chapter 48, another place. Uh, the first uh, couple of verses, chapter th uh, verse 3 in Isaiah chapter 48, he says, I foretold the former things long ago. I told you Christmas was going to happen. Surely I would not plan something like Christmas without letting you know way ahead of time what to look for. Right? He says, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them. I made them known. And then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. Why would you do that, God? Why do you let your plan be known so early on? Well, here's why. Next verse. For I knew how stubborn you were. I knew how hard it would be for you to trust me as your father. I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck are like iron. Your forehead is like bronze. <laughs> God knows what people are like, right? Therefore, I told you these things long ago, before they happened. I announced them to you so that you couldn't say, my idols did them. My wooden image and my metal God ordained these things. Verse 11, for my own sake... God says, for my own name's sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to anybody else. God says, you know, in order for you to understand who I really am, long before things happen, I let you know my plan. That when they happen, you can have confidence that I'm the God who's behind them. And I want to suggest to you this morning, if you would not miss Christmas... You need to know the God behind Christmas. You need to know the God behind Christmas. From ancient days, uh, one more place in Isaiah, Isaiah 41, God actually uses this to sort of mock other religions and other gods. In Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 22, listen to God. He's like, bring in your idols. Tell us what's going to happen. Go get your idols. Go get the things that you worship. Go get the things that you depend on. You go get your idols, and then let's have these idols tell us what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we can consider them and know their final outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we won't be dismayed and be filled with fear. But you are less than nothing. Your works are utterly worthless. And anybody who chooses you is detestable. Anybody who would put their faith in some idol as opposed to the living God is detestable in God's sight. So you see what he's saying? He's like, you know, go ahead. Call in the things that you depend upon. Ask them. Tell us the future. Tell us what's going to happen so that we can know that you're really a God. Uh, chapter 45. Again, uh, I just... I think this is such a significant principle to understand and so helpful in understanding the scriptures. Here again in verse 20, look what God says. He says, gather together and come assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood and who pray to gods that can't save. False religions. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none but me. Turn to me 
and be saved, Isaiah pleads. God says, turn to me, trust me, be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself, I have sworn by my mouth, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone is righteousness. God is saying, I'm telling you ahead of time, you can live in a world where people can think it's foolishness, but you have my word with all my integrity that it represents that there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can count on it. You can count on it. And if you believe it, you know, and you stand for that in this world, you can expect that a lot of people will think you're very foolish because the world is going in a different direction. But God says, go ahead. Take what the world puts its faith in and have it come and tell us what's going to happen in the future. And I say all that just to say that, you know, prophecy is unique to Christianity and to Judaism, to our God. Now, there's no other religion who can come and tell you what's going to happen in the future. It's a great gift that God has given to us in his magnitude and in his omnipotence. God presides over the destiny of the human race and he's not quiet. He's revealed his plan. And uh, when we know that, it builds our faith. Anybody can know. There's only one God. And there's only one faith that has this reality of knowing what's going to happen in the future. Uh, part of God's perfection, part of God's holiness, which means his otherness, you know, is that he has a plan and that he has a purpose and that he's made his plan and his purpose known. One uh, last place, Isaiah 14. I know I keep saying one last place, but... These are good, uh, you know, just to build our confidence. Isaiah 14 and uh, verse 26. This is the plan, God is saying. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed. And who can thwart him? God has a plan. God has a purpose. Nobody can stop him. His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? Nobody can stop what God says. And God has made his plan known. He has uh, revealed it. And so my question this morning is, do you see God behind Christmas? Are you able to see God's hand uh, above the movements of history and beyond the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes of Christmas? Do you see the hand of God? Do you see the hand of God? Do we see with the eyes of our heart that for thousands of years, all of history has been leading to this climactic point that God revealed back in Genesis that the seed of a woman is going to come and crush the head of our enemy. And that for thousands of years, you know, history has been moving to this uh, moment when the, the grip and the reality of the fall and our uh, coming into this world uh, under the curse of damnation is going to be reversed. It's a great moment, but do we see that it's the hand of God? Uh, Ephesians uh, of chapter 1 was read for us this morning. And in Ephesians chapter 1, I wonder, you know, um, if we catch uh, what's said here. The first, uh, just a couple of verses from the New Testament says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us. You ever stop and think about that? You ever get rid of the us and put your name in there? For he chose 
Dave DeVries. In the heavenly realms, he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy, to be different, to be other, to be holy, and to be blameless in his sight. Do you ever focus on this thought that you were chosen to be a part of God's family, to be a part of God's blessing, to be a beneficiary of Christmas? Not everybody in the world benefits from Christmas. And verse 11 says the same thing. In him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan. He has a plan who works everything out in conformity with his purposes, with the purpose of his will. Have you ever read that passage in Ephesians? Just put your own name. Where every time it says us or we, just put your name. And ask yourself if you believe it. Ask yourself if you see behind the events of your own personal life, your own personal history, the hand of God at work. Because if we would experience the reality of the peace that Christmas is intended to bring us, we must be able to see the God who is behind the reality of history and Christmas. And remember, in Ephesians here, uh, you know, Paul's writing to the church. And then uh, 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 chapter 2 talks about the peace. And Leon read for us that passage that talks about, you know, God's greatest intention is that the Jewish people and the Gentile people would come together in Christ and be one, and that is yet to come. It's a beautiful thing, and that it would be the family of God. God has a plan. He has a purpose. And this plan and purpose of God starts with his choice of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a man by the name of Abraham, and he says the seed of the woman will come through Abraham. He chooses Abraham out of all the people that he could have uh, chosen. And uh, that seed will come through Abraham. And, you know, the seed, uh, Paul makes a point of this in Galatians. He says the seed that God talked about is singular, not seeds, but seed. In, in Galatians chapter 3, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham and says, this seed that's going to crush the woman is going to come through you. It's going to, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of Satan. And, and God makes a covenant with Abraham. I wish that uh, all the guys in this church would come to our Bible study on Thursday mornings. We're doing Genesis, and we're on the covenant of Abraham on Thursday morning, 6 to 7.30. You can do it before work. We're having a great study. And we're talking about this covenant that God makes with Abraham. Nothing can stop it. This is a, uh, we talked about the difference between a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant. Some covenants that God makes with, with mankind are unconditional. And, and I tried to point out that Abraham was asleep when God made this promise that this is what I'm going to do through you. It really didn't depend on Abraham at all. It depended on God. Other covenants are uh, conditional covenants where if you do this, I'll do that, God says. And, and so, so, But this, I'm going to bring the seed of the woman that crushes the head of Satan through this man, Abraham. And then, you know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Abraham, uh, after this covenant, um, he has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And God says, I'm going to choose Isaac, the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of Satan is going to come through Isaac. That's my choice, not Ishmael. I'm choosing Isaac, not Ishmael. And then Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. And before they're ever born, God says, I am choosing Jacob. The older Esau is going to serve the younger. 
Esau was born first. And before it was there, God's choice. I'm trying to point out that God has his hand. Uh, Jacob, who uh, was chosen by God over Esau. God says, not Esau, Jacob. And then Jacob, of course, whose name was changed to Israel eventually, has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, Jacob's 12 sons, you know, he has a favorite named Joseph. You remember his story in Genesis. Joseph is a type of Christ. But in Genesis chapter 49, God says, I'm choosing Judah. The seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of Satan is going to come through the tribe of Judah. And, uh, and that becomes significant as, you know, time goes on. You remember, they all end up down in Egypt as slaves, and uh, they're building Pharaoh's, uh, you know, major cities and, and, and so forth. And eventually God says, I'm going to bring you to the land that we know today as Israel. I'm going to bring you to the land of Canaan. And so he did, and you know the whole story there. And eventually they're there for a little while, and they're like, you know what? We want a king like all the other nations around us. But God wasn't ready to give them a king because of the sin of Judah. God said, I'm not going to give you a king yet because I'm not ready to give you a king. So the people rose up and chose their own king, but they chose him from the tribe of Benjamin instead of Judah. And God had said, Genesis 49, the scepter, the kingship, the rulership will never depart out of the tribe of Judah, my son Judah. And they chose Benjamin. And, uh, and as a result of that, uh, in time, when the ten generations were up because of Judah's sin, uh, God takes David and puts him on the throne in Israel in place of Saul, who was a Benjamite. And uh, God says again, you know, the seed of the woman will be a son of David. I, I, I'm not settling for Saul. Saul was a wacko. Do you remember reading about Saul? You ever read about It's a mental case, you know? I'm replacing him with David, my man. And listen, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan will be a son of David. A son of David, my chosen servant, again. Uh, and he will be both priest and king. And on and on you can read about God carefully orchestrating uh, all of those events for thousands of years. Uh, the seed of the woman, uh, God is overseeing. And then finally, you know, we come to the New Testament. And in the first chapter, and in the first sentence of the first book of the New Covenant, Matthew screams, I think. He's here. Thousands of years of God carefully orchestrating and watching over that seed. And Matthew is like, you know, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God has been carefully for thousands of years choosing, orchestrating, choosing, and finally he's here. And then Matthew carefully delineates where this seed of the woman has come from and it's you know starts with abraham and and goes on and goes all the way to david and david goes to the babylonian captivity remember under solomon and so forth because of his high taxation uh israel split into two the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes and uh during isaiah's time isaiah's like you know bad things are going to happen the assyrians are going to come in take over the northern part of israel which they did the ten we call them the ten lost tribes of israel because the assyrians were a tough bunch the Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. You remember God said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, I'm going the other way. I hate those people. They were a mean bunch. They were a tough bunch. The Assyrians were brutal. They came in, took over the 10 northern tribes, spread them all over the place uh, so that they would marry other people and they would be lost. We call them the 10 lost tribes of Israel, but God knows. And you can track and you can see the, the way. Why? Because God has a plan. Because God is sovereign. Because God, God is working a plan. He has a future for those people. 
And then there's the southern tribe, and the Babylonians come in. They're just the two, um, you know, Judah and the tribe of Benjamin make up the southern kingdom. And uh, eventually the Babylonians come in, and the Babylonians come, and, and, and you know, there's not a, a, a king from the uh, clan of Judah, from the tribe of Judah, for six, seven hundred years from the Babylonian captivity until Jesus is born. Because the hand of God is behind Christmas. And God is carefully orchestrating. You can read it here. You know, I know, you know, we look at these genealogies, think, oh, ho-hum, and what does that mean to me, and so forth. But you'll notice here, it tracks from Abraham all the way down to David, David all the way down to the exile in Babylon. And we get all the way down to the 16th verse, to the father of Jesus, the human father, Jacob. And it says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ, the seed of the woman, carefully orchestrating all of this on the male side, all to say, the seed of the woman is here, and it's the son of Mary, Jesus Christ. But the question is, who's listening? Who sees it? Who recognizes the hand of God from Genesis chapter 3 all through the movements of the Old Testament for thousands of years, carefully orchestrating, finally climaxing at this reality of what we call Christmas, where the Son of God, the Son of Man, comes and is born and goes to the cross. This great, momentous climax. And I want to ask the question, do you see God behind the miracle of Christmas? Do you see the God who has a plan and who reveals his plan beforehand to his servants? And do you recognize yourself to be chosen carefully in this plan of God that is working to the end of history after which there's to be a new heavens and a new earth and an eternal kingdom called heaven? Do you see what a privilege it is to be a part, to be chosen, to be a part of that? Now, I know, you know, to think of ourselves as chosen seems arrogant. And it seems narrow-minded in our multicultured, politically correct world. But what does it really mean to be chosen by God? On the one hand, of course, it speaks of privilege. Uh, but on the other hand, it creates a burden. If you think of the Jewish people as the chosen people, and you think about the grief that has come into their life by everybody who's jealous of not being chosen by God, if you think even of the Arab-Israeli conflict that's going on today and is in your news every week, and you trace it back to this reality, what does it mean to be chosen by God? It's a great thing to be chosen. It's a great privilege. However, on the other hand, it's somewhat of a burden. Uh, you might remember if you saw the musical Fiddler on the Roof, there was a guy named Tevya. He was the milkman, but he was kind of a thoughtful milkman. He's always reflecting, and in one scene, he lifts up his eyes to heaven, and he says... I know, I know, we are your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose somebody else? Because just think of all the grief that's come into the Jewish people's lives because of their chosenness. And what a reason people have used that as for anti-Semitism and for hatred of the Jewish people simply out of jealousy because they've had this privilege. But what a burden comes along with it. Now, some Christians I know think that the Jewish people have lost their chosenness after, as a nation, they rejected Christ. But God says, no, there's a future for my people. Some of my covenants are, you know, eternal. Some of my covenants, some of my promises, you know, uh, are unconditional. Uh, in 1899, in 1899, 
Uh, Mark Twain wrote these words about the people of Israel. 1899. He says this, uh, The Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Persians rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, and then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of this immortality? Now, that's written in 1899. That's before the Holocaust. That's before 1948, 50 years later, when the Jewish people, unprecedented ever in history to have a group of people, an ethnic group decimated, spread all over the world, who reconstitute themselves as a nation back into the nation of Israel. Mark Twain would be flipping over if he was alive today. I would say to you that this is a modern-day miracle of biblical proportions. You realize that no other ethnic group besides the Jewish people have more Nobel Prizes more than any other group ever? Why is that? What is it about this? There's the sovereign hand of God. There's the chosenness of God. That is both a blessing and a burden. And I want to just ask this question, you know, do you see the hand of God behind Christmas? Uh, I think that, uh, you know, without seeing the hand of God, the peace, the joy, the love, the, the reality of what it means to us gets lost on us. And, and, and we become kind of like everybody else in the world. I, I just, uh, in order to be chosen, you have to realize there has to be a chooser. In order to be chosen, somebody has to choose. And uh, there is a God. And he has a purpose, and he has a plan, and he's made it known ahead of time so that nobody can miss it. Everybody can know that the one true God is the Father of this Jesus Christ. There is no other God. There is nobody who's made the plan and laid it out ahead of time so that people like you and I could embrace it with all of our hearts. And if we would not miss Christmas, if we would experience the peace, we need to see the God who promised Christmas and the hand of God in the events of Christmas. Now, Isaiah, 750 years before, sees Christmas coming, as we talked about uh, last week. Um, and I think this is uh, extremely significant uh, because he saw the seed of the woman coming 750 years before Jesus ever came. And don't miss the point that Isaiah, uh, his whole prophetic life, his whole understanding, his whole message... His whole life change, if you will, uh, came uh, from being able to see God. Uh, in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, it says this, In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Extremely significant. In the year that Uzziah died, the king, Uzziah, I saw the Lord. Now, he didn't see the Lord with his physical eyes. The Bible says nobody can look on God and live. He saw with the eyes of his heart. 
He saw with the eyes of faith. Paul talks about the eyes of the heart in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Seeing with the eyes of the heart. Seeing as a result of faith. And Isaiah was one who was able to see God. Uh, this phrase. You know, uh, time and time again, we studied this in uh, the book of Acts. You might remember, but uh, all through the Bible, the very last chapter of Acts, this is repeated again. It's a quote, actually, from Isaiah chapter 6, where God says this. He, he says, look, go to, go to the people and say this. You'll ever be hearing, but never understanding. You'll ever be seeing, you know, when, when I, you'll ever be hearing, but not understanding. Every time I go to the mall and there are Christmas carols playing and I, there are these great, fabulous truths about what happened at Christmas, and you just look around, you'll ever be here. I always think of this verse. People are hearing, but they're not understanding. And so the realities of Christmas that have been orchestrated since Genesis chapter 3 are lost on people. And the peace, the joy, the hope, the security that God intends for us to live with is, is missing. Because why? Because you'll ever be hearing but never understanding. You'll ever be able to rehearse the Christmas story, read it out of the book of Luke, talk about the shepherds, the angels, the manger, the whole thing. You've got it all. You'll ever be seeing but never perceiving. For these people's what? Heart has become card, calloused. Here's the problem. You can see, you can hear, but if your heart is hardened toward God, you won't get it. And the realities won't be yours. Uh, for these people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they'd see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and they'd turn to me, and I would heal them. I would be to them like I am to Israel. I would be with them through it all. They would turn to me if they understood with their hearts. If they could see God behind Christmas, they would turn to him with their hearts. And God says, I would heal them. I would make this huge difference in their life. And so for Isaiah, it says here in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Changed everything in my life. Once I could see God, I could see forward 750 years to what God was doing. Why? Because God had revealed his plan. He's the God, I am the sovereign God who reveals before he does anything. It all started, it all changed for him. He became a different person when he saw the Lord. I think for Isaiah, he realized maybe for the first time that this tangible world that we think is so real isn't the only world that exists. This world, the Bible says, has the small g, God, as it's God. But there's another world where God with a capital G reigns. And Isaiah says, in those days when Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, when he says, in the year that Uzziah died, I want to suggest to you that it's something like 9-11 uh, was for us. Pretty much everybody remembers where they were when they heard about 9-11. When 9-11 happened, all of a sudden we realized, you know what, our world's never going to be the same again. What is going on? This is something that's never happened to us before. And our security was rocked. And our sense of well-being, we became vulnerable. All kinds of things happened as a result of 9-11. Everybody remembers exactly where they were. Uzziah was a king who was a success from day one. He was only 16 when he became king. And he reigned in Israel for 52 years. 
And as a result of that, the people got feeling pretty good because everything he did became good. I mean, he won the battles. He created the economic kind of circumstances where everybody prospered. And the days were good, and everybody felt secure. But in the day that Uzziah died, everybody was shook up. Everybody was really shaken. Um, back in Second Chronicles, which is kind of the uh, history of Uzziah's rule, in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 26, here's why uh, Uzziah did so good. It says in verse 4, well, it says uh, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And, and then it says this, as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. However, Uzziah has a weak moment at the end of his reign. In verse 16 of 2 Chronicles, we read these words. These are, these are very sad words, very contemporary words. You can take the news today, and you can read this verse of Scripture, and you can say this principle is still very much at work in our world. Here's what it says. After Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. There you go. Tell me that's not a principle that's lived out every day on your, in your TV in your living room. When Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Here's what happened. He was unfaithful to God. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah, the priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. They confronted him. They said, hey, it's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That's for the priests. Separation of church and state, if you will. Okay? You don't do that. I don't care who you are, Uzziah. I don't care how powerful, I don't care how much money you have, I don't care how much you know, clout you think you carry. So much. You can't do that. It's not right for you to do that. It's for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, because God chose them. They've been consecrated to burn the incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you've been unfaithful. You will not be honored by the Lord your God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. It's a moment of anger. While he was raging at the priests, you got 80 priests and you got the king, and while he's raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead right in that moment. Feel the tension in that room. You got 80 priests. You got this guy with a sensor ready maybe to knock somebody on the head. And leprosy breaks out on his face in that moment. What? Feel the tension. Feel the tension there. Uh, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave. I bet he was. Uh, because the Lord had afflicted him. This is sad. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. It says here that um, he lived in a separate house, leprous, excluded from the temple of the Lord. It wasn't just that Uzziah died, it's how he died. For all these years he had been faithful to God. For all these years he had been blessed. Then he has this moment of anger where his pride gets a hold of his life and it's his downfall. How many times has that story been repeated? In the year that Uzziah died, this guy's office was, that day, his office was cleaned out. He was kicked out of the palace. He's out of there faster than Joe Paterno got fired. Think about it. It's just the same kind of thing, is it not? 
I can remember to this day as I was doing this, tears came into my eyes as I was thinking about this this week. When I was in seminary, my favorite professor, who I learned so much from, was fired while I was there. I was devastated. I thought, you know, I got other seminary professors, but boy, they're pretty boring compared to this guy. He was the best. But pride got a hold of him. And he did some things that were you weren't allowed to do as a seminary professor. And he was gone. And so when Isaiah says, listen, in the year that Uzziah died, and my whole world was rocked, and the whole nation of Israel was in turmoil, I saw the Lord. Do you get the feel of what this is going to... You know, I saw the Lord. I saw God. Well, everybody else is like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And how are we going to shore things up? And, you know, I can't believe that this happened to Isaiah and all the rest of it. Isaiah turns to God. And Isaiah catches a vision of God's plan, which includes Christmas and includes the cross. And 750 years before Isaiah, it's like he's there. Because he sees God and God reveals to him his plan. This all started in the day that Uzziah died. I saw the Lord. Um, I think this is such a significant uh, thing because so many of us, we might be having a year like the year Uzziah died. You might say, hey, the wheels are coming off my life. You know, I don't have a job. I don't have any security about the future. I don't have any confidence in some of the structures that I've always put my faith in, my family, my government, my whatever, my 401k. And the wheels are kind of coming off. This feels like the year that Uzziah died. And I would say to you at Christmas time, look for God. Look for God. Get your eyes upwards. And look for the God who is behind Christmas and you'll experience a peace. You know, for Isaiah, it was a, a moment that was life-changing when he was able to see God. I wonder if you're able to say, yeah, I too have seen God. Um, I think after this, Isaiah saw everything very, very differently. After that, what other people would call success, Isaiah saw as a failure. He had a whole different world in which he was able to evaluate what goes on in this world. After this encounter, after being able to see God, choices that people made that they thought were wise, Isaiah could see were foolish. I think after this encounter, being able to see God and see God's movements behind the scenes, when people could only see this world, Isaiah could see the hand of God behind the events that were going on in this world. And Judah was about to go through tremendous you know, upheaval. The Assyrians and the Babylonians were going to destroy the nation. But Isaiah sees God. And in the midst of all of that chaos that's coming, he's able to be the voice of God to the people of the nation of Israel. He's able to stand up and tell them, listen, this is what's happened. God has said this in the past. This is where we're at today, and this is what's going to happen in the future. God has already revealed it. He's got a plan. He's working his plan. Can you see the hand of God? For thousands of years, he's worked his plan precisely. What he says about the future will come true. God has a plan, and Isaiah becomes the voice of God. God's plan, in the midst of all the chaos, Isaiah turns around and says, listen, God's plan's intact. He's still on the throne. He's still the sovereign God. He's still making choices that will uh, control the destiny of mankind. And he becomes this vocal champion of God in the face of the nation's downfall. 
And uh, when you look at that passage in Isaiah chapter 6, you might ask yourself, when you see the Lord, what do you see? He says uh, here um, in the, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was seated on a throne. I love this. this all these words are like pregnant with me. He was seated. Do you realize that uh, if you read the Bible... Uh, you'll realize there are absolutely no chairs in the temple of God. There's no place to sit. You know why? Because it's an indication that in those days, the, the sacrifices of God were never done. The priests never sat. You had to stand because they were never done because you had to keep, giving, you know, keep doing it. When Isaiah sees God, he's seated. It's finished. And he's seated on a throne, the source of power. And um, Isaiah sees God and... Um, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, what does he really say? And he says, uh, uh, the train of his robe filled the temple. The people who are following him filled the temple. And uh, above were seraphs and so forth. And uh, they're calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy means other. Holy means different. Uh, holy, holy, holy is to, what Isaiah saw was God's perfection or God's completeness. I would say to you that what Isaiah saw is that God is everything I'm not. God is everything I'm not when he saw God. And the result of being truly able to see God through the hand of God and the events of the world, well, the, the result of that, um, you know, at the sound of the voices and seeing God, Here's the, the, the only way you can respond to this. When you, you, here's how you can know whether or not you've really ever met God. I think it always happens this way. Isaiah sees himself differently. You can't see God and stay the same about yourself. If you see yourself apart from God, that's one thing. If you see God and you see what God sees, you'll always change. Always. And Isaiah says it like this. He says, I'm done. I've seen God. I'm done. He's everything I'm not. I was made to be in his image. He's everything I'm not. I'm toast, is basically what Isaiah says here in verse 5. He says, woe is me. I cried out. I'm ruined. I'm done. I am a man of unclean lips. God is holy. He's other. He's different than me. And I was made to be like him, and I'm not. And he's undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand. You know this story, which he had taken from the altar. And when he touched my mouth, he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. What Isaiah saw when he saw God is, unless God does something, I'm done. I have no hope. I have no peace. I have no joy. I have no love. I have no life. But Isaiah, as he unfolds what he sees in his vision, will point to the fact that Jesus Christ came at Christmas to go to the altar of the cross and that the beneficiaries of that cross are the chosen people of the church. Since the beginning of time, this has been in the works. What a privilege it is to have the results of the altar touch your life and experience the reality of being guilt-free, forgiven, the reality of hope and peace and joy and love. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for Isaiah, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. So thankful to think that 750 years before Jesus ever came, Isaiah saw it all. That you revealed to him the plan that you had for Jesus' life. And I pray you'll help us, Father, as we celebrate Christmas this year, to see behind the events of Christmas, the very hand of God who has a plan and who has a purpose for the people that he created and who is sovereign, who is moving through history, controlling the destiny of mankind. And that as we see you and as we understand what Christmas means, that we will experience the reality of the hope, the peace, the joy, the love, that these will be our portion, both now and for eternity. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.